Please take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 18. Pastor Micah is not here. Obviously, he is in, as he would say, Tennessee this week. Not Tennessee, Tennessee. Uh, he's uh, officiating, officiating a friend's uh, wedding, so he's not exactly off the clock or on vacation. Uh, he's still doing the Lord's work, but just keep him and Amber uh, and the kids in your prayers as they're traveling and uh, pray for some rest and relaxation for them. But the title of our message this morning is An Exile's Calling. And our text begins in verse 18. It's going to continue all the way to the end of the chapter. But before we get started, please follow along with me as I begin reading in in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." So last week, Pastor Micah covered verses 13 through 17, which is really the first part in a larger portion of Scripture, including this week's text and extending all the way into chapter 3 down to verse 22. And I want you to remember that in verse 13, Peter said, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And here in verse 18, Peter says that again. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters. So last week, Peter encouraged us to live the Christian life well in a less than ideal society, but now he takes that one step further and he encourages us to live the Christian life well in a less than ideal workplace. And not to spoil what's coming, but in chapter 3, Peter's going to continue the same idea, the same theme, encouraging the Christian life well in a less than ideal marriage and then even in a less than ideal church. So Peter's developing the same theme from living the Christian life in society, in the workplace, in marriage, and in church. So there is a logical progression to Peter's thought process. But how do we live the Christian life well in these spheres, in difficult circumstances, or in circumstances that are less than ideal, or even outright poor? And this morning, the exhortation is a specific one about the relationship between servants and masters, our relationship as servants to our masters. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And jump down to verse 21. For to this you have been called. But what is this calling, 
And how does it affect us in the workplace as we interact with our masters, our bosses, and our employers while we're in this state of exile? And in these verses, I want to show you three ways that we can follow Christ's example while submitting to our masters, but in an even greater context, how we can follow Christ's example while submitting in all those things that Peter talked about, in, in government, in society, in our workplace, in marriage, and in church. So starting off, follow Christ's example in submission. Follow Christ's example in submission. Peter is addressing a New Testament church that is made up mostly of servants or slaves of lower class men and women. You may remember, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, not many of you were wise, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. And in the early church, that was really the makeup. Peter did not necessarily have in mind here the modern industrial workplace or the modern office. He's thinking more so of the home, which is where servants would be employed. And there were something like 60 million slaves uh, or servants in the Roman Empire. But they weren't slaves in the sense that we're familiar with. These weren't slaves in the sense of 19th century Southern America. This was different. These servants were paid. They could actually work towards purchasing their own freedom. They were educated. They were school teachers. They raised children. Some of them were even doctors or uh, lawyers. And they were administrators of industry. They were not limited. But why did Peter choose this particular relationship? Well, the relationship between servants and masters is really the ultimate form of the working relationship. Servanthood or slavery in Peter's day was still oppressive. It was still binding. It was still sometimes harsh and brutal. And servants didn't have the modern-day working rights and laws that we enjoy today. They didn't have a union representative to intercede for them. So in a sense, if this command to submit can apply to a servant's relationship to their master, well, then surely it applies to us in our situation today. If it's right and good for a servant to submit to an oppressive master, then surely it's right and good for us to submit to our master's in our much more fair working environment. But this does bring up a problem, doesn't it? It makes you think, well, what are the limits to my subjection? I hear, we hear the command, it's clear, be subject, but how far does that go? At what point do I no longer have to submit? What if my boss is a jerk? What if he's unfair? What if he's harsh? What if he is a liar and a cheat and a womanizer? What if my boss is contradicting the word of God? Are you saying that we have to submit to him then? No, because submission and obedience are not always the same thing. There may be a time where when you're submitting to your master, you still must disobey them. Why? Because there is a higher command that takes precedent. Let me give you an example. In the fourth chapter of Acts, the apostles were commanded not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. But what did Jesus command them? He said, go therefore, 
Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all these things that I've commanded you. And that's exactly what the apostles were doing. But the priests and the Sadducees told these apostles, they said, you cannot preach anymore in the name of Jesus. So what did the apostles do? Did they stop preaching? Did they submit to that command and stop preaching? Of course not. They continued to preach. And I want you to notice what the high priest said to the apostles in Acts 5.28 after he had already arrested them for disobeying that command. He said, We strictly charged you not to teach in his name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And now listen how Peter answers them. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. So every place you can, you should submit to the ordinances of man. And you should always have a spirit of submission about you, even when you can't necessarily obey. They arrested the apostles. They put them in prison. And when they arrested them and when they put them in prison, they did not revile. They did not resist. They didn't go kicking and screaming. No, they took their punishment submissively. And they submitted to that authority even when they could not necessarily obey the authority's command. They still accepted the consequences and they suffered for doing good. But they had a spirit of submission about them even when they could not obey. In Romans 12, 18, Paul said, If possible, as much as lieth in you, Live peaceably with all. What does that mean, as much as lieth in you? He's saying, you do it the best you can. You do it the best you can. He's saying, do it with all your might. Because the truth is, is that there are some people that you just can't live peaceably with. I'm sure we all know a couple. But why is that? It's because that they won't let you. You're trying, you're being nice to them, you're being kind to them, but they won't let you live peaceably within, and you can't control their conduct. So Paul says, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably. Do your very best to submit to your boss, as much as lieth in you. But if there is a direct conflict between a clear-cut command from God and a command from men, then you obviously must obey God rather than men. And we have more examples of that throughout the Bible. You'll remember when Pharaoh said that all those little boy babies were to be killed. And the midwives said, we're not going to murder these little boys. We're not going to do that. And they were right to disobey that command, were they not? Now, Jochebed took little Moses and she, and she hid him in the bulrushes, and then he, he got found. And even though he'd been found, they bring him back to her, and uh, she continues to nurse him. And so she still had a submissive spirit about her, even though she had to disobey that command. What about Daniel? The high officials of King Darius set a trap for Daniel, and they convinced King Darius to outlaw prayer to any god for 30 days, under the penalty of death, by the way. So what did Daniel do? The Scripture says that Daniel, when he heard that this law had been signed, he went to his house, he got down on his knees three times a day, as he did before, and he worshiped God as he had done previously. And when those dirty officials found Daniel in violation of law, they told the king, and they threw him in that den of lions, and then it says that Daniel fought back. No, it doesn't say that. Daniel went willingly. He was still submissive. He accepted the punishment for that disobedience, but he did it in submission. 
So there are times when human masters in our divine law or God's divine law come into conflict, but God's law always takes precedent every time. So if your boss is a jerk, servants, be subject to your masters. If your boss is mean and nasty and demeaning, servants, be subject to your masters. Not only that, but verse 18 says to do so with all respect. In Ephesians 6, 5, Paul said, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So we submit without bitterness, and we submit without negativity, but instead with an attitude of genuine, gracious honor and love towards our masters. And, you know, it has nothing to do with giving the masters respect, per se. It has to do with giving respect to God. It has to do with fearing and obeying God. And furthermore, our God-fearing attitude is to extend beyond just the good and gentle masters, but also to the unjust masters, the harsh masters, the unfair masters. Anyone can submit to a master who's kind and gentle. But let me tell you, it takes a Christian to submit to an unjust master. And therein lies our Christian witness. That's how we display the love of Christ. That's how we let our light shine before others. That's how we follow Christ's example in submission. So be subject to your masters. Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So be subject even if it hurts. Be subject even when you must endure suffering for it, because Christ also suffered for you. Which brings us to our next point. Follow Christ's example in suffering. Peter reminds us here that one of our principal callings as Christians is to suffer to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. And does he say, well, you stick with it uh, unless it brings you inconvenience? No. Or stick with it uh, only up to the point that you feel that your personal rights have been violated, and then you can bail. No, he doesn't say that. Or does he say, stick with it only to the point that your dignity has been taken away and you've been humiliated, then you can stop. No, that is not what he says. In Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And in John 15, 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And in John 16, Jesus said again, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We are called to suffering because Jesus suffered. The cost of following Jesus oftentimes is suffering. So the road won't be easy. And it is not a cheap grace that we have received. It was a costly grace. 
And verse 19 says, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Gracious meaning grace. You know what grace is? Grace is not giving someone what they deserve. It's giving somebody what they need even when they don't deserve it. That's grace. Your boss doesn't necessarily deserve your submission. But he needs it. You know why? Because by your submission, even when he's unjust, even when he's treating you poorly, when you submit to him, Jesus is going to use that interaction to lead him to Christ. That's why we submit to him. When Jesus calls you, he says, come and suffer. Follow in my steps. Pick up your cross. Follow me. And you say, but I don't want to suffer. That sounds horrible to me. I didn't, I'm not here to suffer. I don't want any of that. Well, let me tell you, when you come to obey Christ, when you come to obey the word of God, when you come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God is going to arc a rainbow of hope over your suffering. He's going to write Romans 8.28 all over it, and God is going to pour out his grace and his power upon you, and you're going to have an effect on that unjust boss, and you're going to have an effect on everybody who witnesses your submission. We all want to do these great big things for Jesus, or at least I would hope that we do. But sometimes we forget about the small things. And sometimes we even avoid the hard things. Have any of you ever taught your children how to drive? Probably. Uh, it was probably a hairy experience, I would imagine. I'm sure it was for my father when he took me out to teach me how to drive. What's the first thing he showed me when he took me out to drive? The brake. He said, that pedal right there, son, that's the brake. That's how you stop this thing. I said, Dad, don't care about that. I want to know where the accelerator is. He said, son, forget about the accelerator. Just worry about the brake. You can't use the accelerator until you learn to manage the brake. But we're that way with the Christian life sometimes, aren't we? I'm an accelerator guy. I still want to use the accelerator. I still have a hard time managing the brake. And right now you might be saying, well, I don't want to hear anything about submission. That's just against my nature. That's not who I am. I don't care about the, the brakes. Well, friend, God won't let you use that accelerator until you learn to use those brakes. If you cannot sub serve and submit to those around you, God is not going to let you lead those around you. Until God sees that spirit of submission, that willingness to suffer as Jesus suffered, God isn't going to let you use it. But when he sees that submission, when he sees that suffering, then God Almighty is going to move heaven and earth on your behalf. He's going to work through you like you want, and the gospel is going to go through your workplace like a cannonball through a crate of eggshells when you begin to honor God through your conduct to that unjust boss. Now, notice in verse 24, by his wounds you have been healed. Jesus suffered and died on our behalf. Have you ever heard of a doctor who made himself sick to make his patient well? That sounds ridiculous. Well, that's Calvary. That's the cross. That's the gospel. When we talk about submitting and suffering, a lot of people think, well, that's not fair. That's not fair that I should have to, I should have to submit to that man and suffer. Well, we're not talking about fairness. That has nothing to do with it. We're not talking about fairness. We're talking about the gospel. We're talking about Calvary. And thank God that the Lord Jesus, when he hung on that cross, thank God that when God looked down upon him on that cross, thank God he didn't say, that's not fair. Thank God that he came, that he submitted himself, that he suffered. 
and that he's been glorified. Paul wrote in, in uh, Philippians, he said, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So have the same mind that Jesus had. Have the same self-emptying, humble mind. A mind that doesn't insist on your own dignity or your own rights or status or getting what you believe is due to you. Have that mind. Suffer in the same way that Jesus suffered. In submission, suffering does not demean you. It does not demean you. It exalts you in the eyes of Jesus, and it makes you more like the Lord Jesus. Jesus was meek. He was meek. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. Submitting yourself to someone else is not demeaning. It is the ultimate strength. It is self-control. It's confidence that Jesus is in control. It's confidence that only Jesus has real, true authority over your life, over that unjust boss's life, and over the relationship that you both are engaged in. Which leads us to our third point. Follow Christ's example in righteousness. When you find yourself struggling... When you find yourself uh, suffering and having to submit to that unjust master, when you find yourself in that place, think about Jesus. That's the default answer. What's the right thing to do? What's the Christian thing to do? What's the ethical thing to do? What's the God-honoring thing to do in this situation? What does Christian behavior look like? Think about Jesus. Imitate Jesus. It is that simple. Look at verse 24. That we might die to sin... And live to righteousness. That's the Christian life. What does the Christian life look like? Well, it involves dying to sin. That's mortification. And living to righteousness. That's vivification. Putting sin to death and cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. Paul said in Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness... And in verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And in verse 22, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. How do we do all of that? We imitate Jesus. You find yourself in a difficult spot? Well, what would Jesus do? I'm sure we all remember that. WWJD, probably when you were young. What would Jesus do? That still applies. And now, when we're fulfilling these commands, it may sometimes feel like you're just having to act as a doormat for unjust suffering. Like Peter is saying that you're just supposed to be walked all over everywhere you go. That is not what he's saying. That's not it at all. This submission, this uh, meekness is your greatest Christian witness to those masters. What do you think would happen if we spent as much time praying for the salvation of those masters as we did complaining about them? What do you think God would do to their hearts? He just might change them. 
That's why we submit not only with eye service, but with genuine Christian love. And Christ told us to love our enemies, not because they deserve it, but because the love of Christ is what turns the tide. The love of Christ is what brings them to Jesus. And now some of you may find yourselves in homes or workplaces that are filled with stress and trial and grief and sorrow, and I get that. I understand that. I've heard it said once before, you don't have to sit out at night in the dark, but if you want to see the stars, darkness is required. And sometimes in order for the light of the gospel, in order for Christ to shine out of you and for the world to see it, darkness is required. So don't count on a strange thing or an odd thing if God's placed you under the charge of a difficult master. Because your Christ-like submission to that person might be the very thing that God uses to save that person's soul, which is our goal, right? I'm reminded of the movie The Bridge Over the River Kwai. Has anybody seen that movie? That's an old movie. Well, it's old to me, but I'm sure some of you have seen it. And Ernest Gordon and how he learned to show this same kind of love to his enemies, the Japanese. And in World War II, Ernest and his men are building that famous railway line. And after learning that the war had ended and the other POWs were making their way back to Britain, traveling through Asia by train, and along the way they ended up in a railroad yard next to a rail car that was filled to the brim with wounded Japanese soldiers. And Gordon describes their condition. He says, they were in a shocking state. I have never seen men filthier. Uniforms encrusted in mud and blood and excrement, their wounds inflamed and full of pus and crawling with maggots. The wounded men looked at us as they sat with their heads resting against the carriages, awaiting fatalistically for death. They were the refuse of war. There was nowhere to go and no one to care for them, and these were our enemy. And Gordon tells how his soldiers responded. He says, without a word, most of the officers in my section unbuckled their packs, took out their rations in a rag or two, and with water canteens in their hands went over to the Japanese soldiers to help them. We knelt beside the enemy to give them food and water, to clean and bind up their wounds, to smile and say a kind word. But not everyone was pleased with this display of compassion. He says that one allied officer said, What bloody fools you all are. Don't you see that that's the enemy? And of course, they, they did realize, they did realize that that was the enemy. But they were enacting the principles of 1 Peter 2 and of the Sermon on the Mount and offering the other cheek and loving your enemy and doing good to those that abuse you. This is a word for the workplace. And Peter is urging you, bring Jesus into it. Bring his suffering into it and remember what he did for you. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. He did something that we can't do. He took our sins and all of their ugliness and he received in his own body our death penalty. And now as we close, I want you to think about this. As we, as we walk through life, there will be times when our hearts are breaking under our burdens. 
And there'll be times when our knees are buckling under the load of our suffering. There'll be times when we suffer for our faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. And our bodies are going to age and they're going to become weak and our minds and our memories are going to fade. And there'll be times when we meet trouble at every turn and suffering will dog each and every step that we take. But when you are in the thick of battle, I want you to remember that your suffering will not last forever. You will be released from your burdens soon enough. You are going home. This is temporary. And if you're stuck with an unjust master or if you're submitting in the midst of suffering, remember that your suffering is working for your benefit too. Compare everything you face right now with where you're going and what you are becoming. Keep this life in perspective. Your suffering here is going to increase your glory there. Rest in his promises. Trust God. Trust that what he's doing is for your good and for his glory and that his will is being accomplished in your life and in the life of that unjust master and in the earth. And these burdens of suffering are forcing us into deeper service for our Lord and they are making us more like Jesus. In spite of what you may face, praise him. Remember what awaits you in glory, and remember that this is temporary. Let's pray.